Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 5. And we're going to pick up the narrative today in verse 30. And let's just dive right in. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then fast forward to verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, eat and drink. So today, apparently, we are going to talk about eating and drinking. Now, I imagine you, most of you do not associate eating and drinking with your life of faith. We associate what and how we eat often more with our health or our diet than we do with our worship and our identity as Jesus' disciples. And while you may occasionally consider, like, how do we steward and put to good use the, the income with which God has provided us with, we often, we don't often, we rarely consider how we steward the 90-odd meals that God graces us with every month. And if talking about eating and drinking in church is a foreign conversation for you, just know that it would not be strange to a first century Jew or an early Christian. Indeed, from the beginning of the Bible, God's people have been set apart and made distinct by the way they ate and drank. Consider this, that nearly every time God did a new thing in his engagement with humanity, every time there's a a change in their kind of relational dynamics between God and man. That new covenant was enacted in the practical realities of how God's people consumed food. And if you haven't realized this, let me give you three examples from Scripture. We can start at the Garden of Eden. Start at the beginning. God brings humanity to existence. He communes with them there in the Garden Paradise. Eden is teeming with this abundance of provision. But God specifies what? He specifies you may eat from all of the trees except one. It's a tangible way for humanity to demonstrate their submission to God's leadership in the way they eat. They're trusting in his wisdom and his way. It's a mark of the covenant that exists between God and humanity. Well, now fast forward to after the flood. God's cleansed the earth of the corruption that human violence and wickedness has wrought. He's he's made a way to preserve Noah and his family through the storm, and humanity's beginning there beneath the rainbow, starting anew. And God grants to his rescue people the meat of every animal for food. But they mustn't eat the blood. Weird, I know. But blood is this representation of the animal's life force. 
And our God is the God of life. And he declares himself to be the defender and protector of every living, living being. And he says, I will demand a reckoning for every life taken. Thus, the draining of the animal's blood, it's symbolic. It's returning the animal's life to the God who gave it life. It's an expression of gratitude and this humble recognition that that life was taken with permission. That humans are partaking in God's bounty as his guests. So that's the second way that God makes his people's diet, his, their eating and drinking distinct. We'll now skip ahead to after the Exodus. You can read about this in Leviticus 11. God's delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, and, and there in the wilderness, he's forming this ragtag collection of freed slaves into a new nation. He's been feeding them manna, this mysterious bread out there in the desert. He's been causing water to spring up from the rocks. But before they enter the promised land and step into their inheritance, God imposes upon Israel a distinctive diet that will make them strange, that will set them apart from the surrounding nations and cultures. They will be God's holy people, his agents out in the world, but they're not to take in, to incorporate within themselves the world's uncleanness. So this is where we get the kosher diet of the Jews with its avoidance of unclean foods. It's intended to be this tangible enactment of their spiritual training of how they're going to be in the world as a blessing, but not of the world. Now here in the Gospel of Luke, the most religious among them are taking issues with Jesus' meal practices. They accuse him of doing it wrong. But Jesus says, pay attention. The times are changing. God is again doing a new thing. And this new thing will be reflected in a new way of eating and drinking. It's this realization of what the prophet Isaiah foretold in Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, for I give drink to my chosen people the people who I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. So what are the scribes and the Pharisees opposed to? Well, they dislike with whom Jesus eats. He eats with the spiritually compromised and the undesirable. He breaks bread with the tainted and the terrible, and his contemporaries are genuinely perplexed. Why associate with those with whom they agree are rightly excluded by polite society? They also oppose the spirit in which Jesus and his disciples eat and drink. They don't like their joyous reveling. They say, God is drawing near. Great! But that should evoke a somber response, not joy, not a party. Ought we not quake in holy fear? Ought we not mourn in sackcloth and ashes? 
They say it would be better to refuse food and to fall on our faces in prayer because the day of the Lord is a day for seriousness and anxiety, a time for recommitment and, and self-denial and a humbly, humble redoubling of our efforts because we fear that even the best among us falls short. But Jesus has shown up and he's declared, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, release to the oppressed, restoration to the blind. He heralds the arrival of God's favor. And he announces that God's new day, that salvation will come through him. And then he goes about demonstrating this good news through his actions. He enacts the gospel and the practical realities of our lives. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He recruits the unworthy and the overlooked. And he sits down to meals with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He demonstrates the gospel and now here, he's going to try to explain it and invite his hearers to experience it. So let's read our passage in full. And the Pharisees and their scribes, verse 30, grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking the old desires the new, for he says, the old is good. Jesus says that the old way and the old spirit are incompatible with God's new moment. Fasting is appropriate when you're pleading with God to intervene, to set things right, to save us from that which oppresses us and from the destruction that lurks in our own hearts. But when God actually arrives to make the world new, you've got to celebrate. When God steps into his creation to forgive sins, to bind the broken, to embrace the failed, to transform us by the utter goodness of his unquenchable life, feasting is what's appropriate. This is salvation. God in his grace has thrown humanity a wedding banquet that we did not deserve. 
with Jesus as our bridegroom. Jesus is the new future we've been waiting for. Jesus is saying that such a development requires us to be flexible and receptive. This is what's behind the metaphor of the wineskins, which I have a picture if you've never seen this before. You see, new wine, it still has to ferment. And as the sugars convert to alcohol, not only does the sweetness mellow and the flavor profile become more profound and robust, but the wine, it gives off gases. I grew up in the wine country. I learned all about winemaking over there. And in the ancient days, they'd put it in a, a sealed wineskin, would be how they would store wine. And this gas would cause stretching. And then if the leather was old, if the animal hide was not pliable and supple, if it couldn't stretch, the off-gassing of the wine would cause too great of a strain and the skins would burst and you'd lose both the wine and the container. And Jesus, he's chiding the religious leader. He's saying, you struggle to receive the new that I bring because you prefer the old. You prefer the status quo. And honestly, it makes sense that people enjoy old wine. Old wine has a higher alcohol content. It carries with it a familiar buzz and all the warm fuzzies. But it's a false comfort. Jesus implies that the old wine is past its shelf life. It's, it's starting to spoil. It cannot bring true joy. And we've got the religious and the well-to-do, and they're not super eager for God's new day because they're comfortable in their positions. They might not be doing well, but they're doing better. They're doing incredible as compared to everyone else. Compared to the unwashed masses, their resumes are impressive. They take pride in their performance, and it brings them good vibes. Not to mention power and influence in society. They've, they've worked so hard to be good. And yeah, sure, they, they may fall short, but they don't want to hear that they're sick with some terminal disease and in need of a heavenly physician. They want to be commended, not called to repentance. Because after all, aren't they in better shape than the tax collector and his corruption, the, the crass fisherman? And in the face of their resistance, Jesus beckons. He says, follow me. Enlist as my apprentices. Learn my way in my heart and allow my life to be reproduced in you. I come bearing something new, new wine for you to receive and to experience, for you to partake in and share with others in this thirsty world. It will bring joy and life and healing. And you will experience this good news and you will be transformed by this salvation at the table. I guess I haven't seen this before, but meals have always been a sacred moment for our species. 
Why is this? And here I'm going to quote a local pastor from Bellevue, Jeff Vanderstadt. In his book, Saturate, Being Disciples of Jesus in the Everyday Stuff of Life, he writes this. Something very significant happens at a meal. We are hungry. We are in need. And that need is met only by something outside our bodies. When people eat together, they experience something more than a physical event. A spiritual event takes place, whether they acknowledge it or not. God has provided a means to sustain life outside our own lives. And whenever we eat, we are experiencing God's care and provision. The meal also creates an experience of unity, of oneness at the table. We are one in our need and one in our taking of God's provision for our need. Thus, we have communion. Let that sink in for a second while I drink but not eat. Jesus says that if you want to know the power and the reality of this gospel, watch how I and my disciples eat and drink. You can experience the glory of God's salvation with them at the table. To which I, my heart starts to race, and I kind of want to shout and wave my hands and say, Jesus, 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 I think I missed the memo. My mealtimes aren't saturated with the gospel. My eating and drinking doesn't look that much different from anyone else's. As a community, you may have to teach us again how to eat well. I'm not certain God's gospel is on display as we eat. We've fallen out of practice. We've slipped out of rhythm. We've forgotten the lessons that your early disciples seem to have known so well. Now, before I engage in a little teaching, I have a question for you to consider. And I'll put it on the screen. In what ways might you view meals differently if you realize that everyone is a way to remember and display the gospel? Think about that for a moment. Honestly, I am stunned as I've been digging in these last several months and with the men's Bible study on Wednesday nights. There's this strong emphasis on eating and drinking in the Gospel of Luke. It's almost the Gospel's organizing principle. Matthew has you going from teaching to teaching. Mark has you going from mighty deed to mighty deed. And in Luke, Jesus is eating his way across the gospel. He's going from meal to meal, which might be why I love this gospel. And it's forced me to search the scriptures and discover again, what are we missing? What, is God, what do gospel-saturated mealtimes look like? What is kingdom eating and drinking and as I dug into God's word this week, there was five things that rose to the surface. And I just want to share them with us this morning. As we learn Jesus' way and his heart, as we, we put our trust in God and we allow his spirit to reproduce Christ's life in us, 
What are the practical implications for us on the three meals we eat every day? And here's what I've discovered. Number one, Christians eat with joy, grateful and satisfied with what God has provided. I'm just going to read you some scriptures. Psalm 145, 15 through 16. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Ecclesiastes 8.15 And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go down, will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Hear Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 12, 29 through 30. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. And then we saw how Jesus actually eats. Every time we celebrate communion, we remember that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, when he had blessed it, he broke it and gave it to them. Christians eat with joy, grateful and satisfied with what God has provided. Number two, Christians eat in freedom. We leave behind the old wine of the Levitical food laws. It's no longer about what we eat. It's about how we eat. No longer in Christ is it do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. But we read in 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Mark seven eighteen through 19, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And Luke in Acts 10 shares with us this vision that Peter gets about eating. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is defiled or unclean. And a voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call defiled. Christians eat in freedom. If you want to be vegetarian, great. It's not a commandment. We eat in freedom. Eat bacon. Eat whatever. Number three, Christians eat, keep a generous table, freely sharing with those in need. We loved because he first loved us. Freely we've received. Freely we give. God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 18. Do good, be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Jesus in Luke 14, 12 through 14. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, for they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We eat with joy, we eat with freedom, we eat 
in a spirit of generosity. Number four, Christians eat together regularly, regularly to build one another up and to become an intimate, mutually supportive spiritual family. The early church could not meet, it seems, without sharing a meal. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. We're called to eat together and eat together in such a way that we become family because that's what we are in Christ, but we forge those family ties at the table. Not just in this building, in our homes, out in our community. Romans 14, it is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this is the last one that I've identified. Number five, Christians practice gospel hospitality. We dine with the stranger, with the sin sick, with the lonely, with the broken, even with our enemies. We'll read in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus meets with a tax collector. He meets with a Pharisee. He eats with both of those. He goes back and forth, not just those who welcome him, but also those who oppose him. You see, Christian eating and drinking reenacts how the gospel, on account of what God has done, breaks down barriers, erases divisions, heals wounds, and opens the door to love and forgiveness and belonging. And Luke wants to make sure we don't miss this message. In Acts, he has Corn, uh, Peter realize the, the meaning behind that vision. And Peter says, you yourselves know, this is Acts 10, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. God's invited him to have a meal with a Roman centurion, his enemy, but God has shown me that I should not call any person defiled or unclean. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And I'm going to open my table to you so that you might know and see and experience a taste of God's grace. In him, the dividing wall of hostility between God and man has fallen. Between people groups, it's fallen. He's made peace by his blood. So there can be peace between you and that neighbor with the loud music and the uncut lawn and the difficult dogs. We can, that's, that's a hypothetical. I'm not thinking of anyone. But you'll realize as we go through the gospel of Luke how often this is the picture of what Jesus offers. I'll just give you one more scripture. This is the parable of the prodigal son. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, our image of God, our father, said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put them on him and Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for the son, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Jesus might care far more this week about how we eat and drink than about the number of church events we show up for. And it's interesting how Jesus equips us to share his life and his mission. First, he demonstrates he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Then he explains it. He says, I have this mission to seek and save the lost. Then he invites us to experience it because we were sinners welcomed to his table. Many of us have eaten And shared of his hospitality. Then he says, practice it. Open up your tables in generosity, in gospel hospitality. And when we begin to do with Jesus, when we begin to practice his rhythms and his life, he exposes what is in our heart and he invites us to reflect upon it and to process that with him and to keep on going. Repeat until the life of Christ is reproduced in us. And I'm still coming to grips with this, that God cares so much about us living and experiencing and sharing the gospel in the ordinary parts of our lives just as much as he cares about anything that happens in this building. You can share the gospel with your neighbor clearly across the table. And they might be more inclined to meet you there than meet you here. Allow me one more quote from this book that I've been reading by Jeff Vanderstedt. We regularly eat meals with others as a display of the love, provision, and acceptance of God. We overcome idols like selfishness, giving up family time and the extra cost to feed others. We overcome idols like perfection. The house is a mess. That's mine. We overcome issues about safety, idols of safety. They're not like me and control when folks show up unexpectedly. We lay down our lives and invite people in, followers of Jesus or not, and generously share good food and drink with them. You're already eating probably three times a day. Don't do it alone. Do it with others and watch Jesus join you at the table and change the meal. He's well acquainted with joining people at the table. Invite him to dinner with a few others and see what he does. And I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us. But as they come, I have some questions for us to begin to to process this and reflect on this. How often do you share a meal? You have 90-odd meals in a month. How often do you share a meal with people in your faith community? How often do you share a meal with people in your mission field, those people in your life already 
who God has you in contact with who don't yet know Jesus. Why is that? And then I challenged our men's group with this and I challenged myself as we think through the next month, the next couple weeks, who's one person in your faith community and one person in your mission field with whom you might eat this month. God has laid a table before us in the presence of our enemies and he has welcomed us in by his grace. And it's not just some spiritual truth. It's a physical embodied reality that lonely and broken and sin-sick people are finding a place at the table of his grace. And he says, you will experience my grace at a table. And he says, so will others who do not yet know me. So let this good news saturate not only your mind, in your heart, but the basic rhythms of your life, your eating and your drinking. I just can't get that picture out of my head of God as the Father who looks at each and every one of us and says they might be far off, but there's a place for them here with their name on it. And I am in the business of bringing people home. And every time that happens, it's a party. And we find our place at his table. And we, may we make space at our tables for others that he is welcoming home. Amen.